MSW Media. This week, Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House for a second time as Democrats took back the House of Representatives. But that blue wave that swept the Democrats into power would have given them a much larger majority without gerrymandering. And campaign finance reform may be necessary to ensure that Congress is responsive to the people. What can be done to eliminate gerrymandering and reform campaign finance laws? And what agenda should House Democrats pursue in the year ahead? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I, you know, I have to say we have already started to see the effects of the House Democrats taking over uh, just this morning. It's, fr- it's Friday, uh, January 4th, and uh, we have already uh, seen Donald Trump tweeting about impeachment. He's clearly got that on his mind. I think people like thinking about him uh, shaking in his boots. I don't know that he is, but every time he tweets, you're like, oh, someone's been riled a little bit. And they already took a vote to uh, to stop the shutdown last night, didn't they? And I, don't, I mean, it still has to go through the Senate. Exactly right. You know, it was a vote that, uh, in fact, had some Republicans switch sides, which I give those those Republicans credit. I'm sure that they're just reading the tea leaves for 2020. But, <laughs> you know, these Republicans on, bo- bo- on both sides, the House and the Senate, voted to to end the shutdown on the exact terms that Pelosi is offering here, which is just to have a clean bill uh, without funding for the wall that just allows things to keep going till February. Right, separates it out. Right. right, and so Trump changed his mind for whatever reason. I think you know he was getting some pressure from the folks on Fox News. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, they don't like this. I guess it changed my mind. Yeah. So the, the we you know the the Democrats uh, in the House uh, with some a few Republicans. Uh, ultimately uh, passed that. I don't, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has said uh, he doesn't uh, plan to even call that to a vote. Although it was interesting uh, last night, Cory Gardner, uh, senator from Colorado, who's a Republican who will be up for re-election, right. uh, said that he did support uh, what the uh, the Democrats had proposed this, the uh, the bill from before. So you know we'll see what happens there. But I, I think it can't be understated how much um, this change uh, will transform how Trump uh, is is going to be acting going forward, because for the first time in the Trump presidency, you have a group that has power to oversee him and check his to check him and will exercise it, unlike the Republicans. Right. And I saw that they are going to go after his uh, tax returns. Obviously, there's some lofty things, uh, you know, whether it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, with her uh, with you know some of the <clears throat> environmental issues that he, she has. Uh, did you see that she wants to uh, tax the super wealthy by 70 percent? 
in I order to fund? I, yeah, I didn't see that. But, you know, that's so that's part of what I think will be interesting about our discussion today. And uh-huh. let me kind of preview for everybody what I what we'll be talking about today, because we kind of have two different ways of looking at the same issue of the House Democrats taking over. Right. You know, our in the beginning, we're going to have a very celebrated election lawyer who's going to come in um, and talk to us about cases that he has uh, before the Supreme Court now uh, and that he had last term on the issues of gerrymandering. He's going to talk about campaign finance reform. He's also got a case uh, up to the Supreme Court on that. Um, And, you know, we're going to talk about these issues because, frankly, one thing people don't realize is that the, um, the House Democrats' margin of victory nationwide in the popular vote was the biggest margin of victory they had since the the Watergate era and yet the 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 great gain in seats was not as large as it might have been because of gerrymandering um, and gerrymandering I think has also played a role in um, in making our Congress more partisan because what gerrymandering is is it is a um, it is a method by which a, a the you know a certain party will protect their people from having competitive elections by packing in as many people of the opposition party into one district so you'll have 90% democrats in one district and then 45% democrats in the other districts so that they're essentially guaranteed a loss in those other districts they're spread around to weaken their their voice so uh, you know that i think will be very interesting we can talk about what we could be doing to reform um, our electoral process uh, and then we're going to have uh, a congressman coming in who is an ally of Ocasio-Cortez, the only congressman to endorse her, uh, sitting congressman to endorse her, who supports the Green New Deal and a lot of the things that she's been talking about. So we can ask him some of the tough questions about you know how, the, how those will be funded, but more importantly, what the Democrats' agenda should be. And he's also an ally of Pelosi's. He can talk to, uh, to us about her as well. I'm curious to talk about uh, you know gerrymandering in particular with uh, with Paul because obviously because uh, you know it's just something that doesn't grab people's attention. They hear it, they kind of have an idea of what it means. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are people who are passionate about it, want there to be reforms, but it's not something that you can you know sort of put to the people and go, you know, what do you want to do about this? Or or it's not it's hard to do a call for action, I guess, on something like that. Exactly right. And, you know, one thing we've been getting a lot of comments and feedback from all of you and Patty and I read them pretty closely. And it seems that a lot of you enjoy getting into the weeds and and learning more about some of the issues that impact our country or that impact the news uh, of the week, something more than you just hear on cable news. And that's what we're going to have an opportunity to do today, because gerrymandering is a subject that I think everyone's aware of. But I don't think most of us know a lot about the law of gerrymandering, uh, what the Supreme Court has said about gerrymandering, what they may be saying in the future uh, and the different efforts that are going on in different states. And 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 the, the lawyer who will have on is is somebody who can also you know, give us some insight into some of the other issues. You know, I, I know some of you've asked about um, voter rights, about campaign finance, about some of the things that were happening, for example, in Georgia. You know, we can get into a lot of those uh, issues with him and discuss them. So so hopefully today uh, this will be a nice combination of, of talking about some of those in-depth issues, but also talking about what's happening in Congress. I just read something that, do you know why it's called gerrymandering? Um, I don't recall. So you tell me. <laughs> it's a, it refers to a Massachusetts uh, governor, El, Elbridge Gary, who in 1812 approved a state Senate district shaped as a salamander that became known as a gerrymander. 
Well, there you go. Now you know. It was shaped like a salamander. <laughs> I never knew that. I just, I'm sorry. I just got excited. No, that's I'm a dork. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm a history dork. You no, know that. that's fine. But, but you know, in, in any event, I think, I will say this stuff's important. One thing that uh, people ask about all the time is, why is it that we're becoming more divided as a country? Why is it that ordinary people, normal people who are trying to get involved, feel like they have less and less of a voice? And I think one of the, the reasons is gerrymandering. A lot, a lot of Americans, the vast majority of Americans, live in a House district that is essentially a safe seat for one party or the other. So they don't really feel like they have a voice. They feel like that, that person is... Um, uh, is essentially ruling over a seat that they can't be toppled from. And in terms of campaign finance, um, I, you know, I will tell you as somebody who ran for office myself, I ran for attorney general here in Illinois, a huge part of what our elected representatives do is raise money. Uh, and it is hard to raise money. And frankly, um, what we're what we see is a lot of undue influence from certain groups, certain people. We all hear about it, and I think a lot of people are concerned because there's a lot of influence where you know billionaires uh, come in and spend sure. tons of their own money. We're talking about the state of Illinois, two governors back to back who are huge billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those are factors that make people so cynical as well. I mean, it, part of it we allow ourselves to get cynical, but if they feel as though it doesn't make a difference, you know, because of gerrymandering or because of the, the kind of money that goes into these elections people don't want to show up yeah so part of the point of what we're trying to do here in this podcast is to inform everyone so that you can be more intelligently engaged in the political process and as citizens and so you know look your votes your voices your hard work uh, your donations, small money donations, made a difference uh, in this last election. There's no question that no yeah. uh, the the turnout was very, very high for a midterm, uh, and that resulted in this wave that that created a cataclysmic change in the House of Representatives. But in addition to that, uh, our our attention to issues like gerrymandering and campaign finance, and us making those issues that um, that that politicians have to act on and feel pressure from us to act on, that can generate real change. You know, one thing that on a prior uh, episode of this podcast, the first time he was on, Matthew Miller said that in his view, uh, Republicans had figured out that they didn't, that voters didn't care about these process issues, that you could do whatever you wanted to do on these process issues like campaign finance or gerrymandering, and voters really didn't care. It's up for to us to care, and it's up for us to, to, to do something about it, and that's why the issues in this podcast are so important. I agree. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I keep trying to— I, every time I get a caller who wants to gripe about something, I'll ask them who their rep is, who their senator is. I don't, and I don't mean to like trick them or anything, but you know, you're calling and yelling at me about something. Well, you know, there's an office you can go to right in your neighborhood. <laughs> Stop by, call them, write them. Well, I'm a big believer that we have to get beyond liking uh, tweets or posting things on Facebook or whatever people do. If you stay on your couch and you don't do get off of your couch and you don't really do anything, you're not going to change America. So, you know, one of the the themes that I, we've talked about when we've discussed a lot of the Mueller news is my uh, belief that, you know, you shouldn't be sitting back and waiting for Bob Mueller to change America. You need to get off your butts and change it yourself. Uh, and I think the the discussion we're having today, both regarding 
you know, these issues of whether it's campaign finance or gerrymandering, but also what our elected representatives are doing. I, I will tell you, there are sharp disagreements about what House Democrats should be doing, and there's a lot of discussion about what the agenda should be, uh, how oversight should be conducted. Um, there's been some sharp debates, and Frank, the con congressman that we have on, has had some sharp debates with other members of the caucus about what direction it should take, and I think that's a healthy debate, and we need more citizens engaged in that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, like I said, showing up is such a big part of it, knowing what they're debating about. But I do think that the, the conversations are shifting, and, and, I, and I'm appreciating the fact that there are so many different voices now that are shaping that. It's, it's been fascinating to watch that develop. Yeah, I mean, no, there's no question that a lot of the excitement that people felt um, yesterday was uh, with this new house coming in was a house that was more reflective of the way America looked, at least on the Democratic mm -hmm. side. That's the case. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's over I think there's something like 89 um, uh, Democratic women uh, ho House members. And there are you know, there we saw people of all different uh, backgrounds who were uh, sworn in yesterday. That was really something. There's a lot of coverage of some of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that definitely concerns some people, you know, on the on the right. There's you know, yesterday I was tweet. Uh, there was a, these tweets about, you know, people making fun of how. Um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez was dancing when she was in high school. Can or? you believe that they go after, I mean, first of all, it actually just gets her more fans. It seems like her popularity grows every time they try to shame her. I didn't really understand it. I mean, it's just if you've never it's seen a, cute, a woman, it's a cute oh, video. you've never seen a woman dance before. I don't know. It just struck me as. as <laughs> Have you seen people posting Rick Perry dancing on Dancing with the Stars? Uh, they, you want to see an embarrassing I, politician dance? I don't want to. I don't want to see that. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from that. I, so, um, yeah, so in any event, um, you know, I think that um, there's certainly going to be, there may be some backlash from somebody. It's a good thing for our country that we, everyone feels more included in the political process. I enjoyed watching Mike Pence be uncomfortable swearing in uh, Kristen Cinema with her. Uh, she had her hand on the Constitution instead of the Bible. He was not he was not comfortable in that situation with her. <laughs> well, um, I'm comfortable with anyone who loves the Constitution being in our office. We need to have more fidelity to our the Constitution and laws of this country. That's what will make me happy. So let's bring in Paul M. Smith. Uh, Paul is a famous Supreme Court lawyer. He's argued 23 cases in the Supreme Court, uh, including the famous Lawrence versus Texas case, which established important rights for LGBT Americans. Uh, he's argued First Amendment cases, but lately uh, he has been focused on election law cases. He's brought uh, the gerrymandering case in 2017, uh, the North Carolina case. He's currently got cases that he's uh, he's been trying to get in front of the Supreme Court now. He's, he's the Supreme Court may be taking cases that he has where he's representing uh, voters in North Carolina and Maryland on gerrymandering issues as well as a campaign finance issue. Um, you know, he is also, uh, I, I should say, a lawyer that I have admired for quite some time. So let's uh, call Paul. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Hello. Thanks uh, for letting me join you. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you, when I was a young lawyer uh, working as a, as a law student in your as a law student in your office, I was 
uh, frankly, uh, never thought that I would have the chance to interview you in a subject like a subject like this. So it's an honor to, to have you on the po- on the podcast. You're certainly one of the celebrated Supreme Court lawyers of your generation. So thank you. So um, I want to talk a little bit about gerrymandering and help listeners understand what that is. So can you help us understand what gerrymandering is, how it works? Right. So partisan gerrymandering, the term gets used in other contexts, but the main concept of gerrymandering is partisan gerrymandering is a way in which you can make the votes of one party count a lot more than the votes of the other party by the way you draw district lines, either for Congress or the state legislature. And and their basic techniques are very simple. If if you want to make one party's votes not count very much, um, you pack as many of that party's uh, members into a few districts as you can. So if you can create some 90% districts, that's really helpful because a lot of those votes don't get turned into representation. They get wasted. And then you try to spread the rest of them out uh, in districts where it's maybe 40 45%, so they, again, get wasted. They don't carry those districts. And if you do that, you can very easily have a, a maybe a 50-50 statewide vote for the two parties in the legislature. Uh, it turned into a two-to-one majority in the in the legislature uh, just by disparate weighting of how you waste people's votes. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem that's been around a long time, but it's getting worse, uh, and we're hoping the Supreme Court will finally recognize that there's a need to do something. Yeah, I will tell you, I, I was really surprised when I first heard about the litigation you had up in 2017. I thought it was very interesting because traditionally uh, the courts have been very concerned about gerrymandering that has the effect of weakening the power of particular racial groups, for example, but not as much about electoral gerrymandering that you're talking about here. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in the way that courts have viewed those two things? Right. Well, the court has been very, very protective of the interests of of racial minorities in in districting and in other aspects of election law going back to the 1960s, uh, a lot of it under the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which provides protection from discrimination in election law based on race. And so we see cases about making sure there are districts in which African Americans or other minorities can elect candidates of choice. And then more recently, we've seen cases where the court was thought that people had gone too far in trying to isolate people based on race and drawn really ugly districts, uh, the so-called racial gerrymandering doctrine. But you're right, the court has been very uh, active in getting involved in policing the the consideration of race in in, uh, redistricting. In the partisan context, it's not that they've ever had any doubt about whether it's constitutional for uh, a government to engage in partisan gerrymandering. After all, how could it not be? It's basically the use of law, a district map is a law, uh, for the purpose of trying to distort democracy uh, to make one party a guaranteed winner in advance of the election because the government has decided it likes the political views of one political party better than the political views of the other political party. Uh, that is about as uh, contrary to the basic principles of the First and Fourteenth Amendments as you can get. Uh, but the issue has always been uh, justiciability, to use a, a technical term, whether or not the court can figure out standards that are sufficiently clear and manageable that this is a problem that can be policed by the courts. And there have always been some justices 
who are concerned that the line drawing problems are, are insuperable here. And so I've actually argued this issue three times, not most recently last year, but going back to 2004. Uh, and each time the court has never been quite willing to say we're not going to police this. It's never been quite willing to say we are going to police this. Uh, they've just kind of left it a, a, an open question. Uh, and we'll find out probably again this term whether they'll they'll finally do something. So first of all, for, so everyone knows what he's talking about. When Paul mentions the court, he means the Supreme Court. Most oh, of yeah. all, when I go to court, when I go to court, it's going for in front of a trial court or a jury. This Paul's doing something very different. And this is the capital C court. Yeah, yeah, the capital C court. So that's that's lawyer speak for the Supreme Court, um, which is where, where most lawyers do not practice in front of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so Paul is very much like Neil Katyal, one of our prior guests, uh, who practices a lot in front of the Supreme Court and approaches things from that perspective. Now, you know, Paul, you mentioned this the, with this, I, I guess I'll call it a fancy legal term of justiciability. Essentially, is the is the issue there that the Supreme Court often doesn't like to wade into political matters uh, unless they can, you know, provide clear legal standards. Is that sort of what right. you're getting at? Right. The, the, the doctrine is called the political question doctrine. And if you break it down, the, the, something becomes a political sta a question often if uh, the court can't figure out a way to articulate uh, a, a legal line between legal maps and illegal maps. Uh, that will be consistent across the cases, and, and they worry about that because they, you know, the courts are are supposed to be applying law, not just sort of deciding what they like and don't like, and thumbs up and thumbs down. And so, unless they can come up with uh, standards that give some predictability and and consistency, they they are uncomfortable. So we've been trying to help them uh, find those standards, and uh, we have various ways to do it. And they're they're actually. These two cases that are heading to the court maybe as early as uh, this, this week that uh, um, will have several different approaches to trying to answer that, that standards problem, uh, and maybe we'll find five votes this time. One of the listeners asked if there's going to be a difference now that uh, Kennedy has left and Kavanaugh is on the court. Well, it, the departure of Kennedy was significant. If you go back to the case that uh, I was talking about in 2004, uh, the plaintiffs, that is to say, my, my clients who were challenging the Pennsylvania congressional map back in that case called Veith versus Jubileer, um, we got four votes. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion for four justices saying that all of these cases should be out of court. They're, they're all political questions. And then Justice Kennedy wrote an intermediate opinion saying, well, I don't think you've given me enough to rule for you here, but in the future, I'm not ruling out that people could come in with clear enough and manageable uh, formulas and standards. Uh, and so that, that fifth vote was always out there. Uh, and certainly when we were arguing the case from Wisconsin a year ago, a case called Gill versus Whitford, we were really pitching it to Justice Kennedy, who was still there. Uh, and so, you know, obviously the the departure of that potential fifth vote uh, raises the question. And the, the uh, on the other hand, I think the the situation is such now that the problem of gerrymandering is so clearly becoming worse that we we will make the pitch to um, find five votes elsewhere in the next cases that hopefully will be argued this April. A lot of our listeners think of the Supreme Court as divided in a 5-4 split, where there's four, like, I'll say, Democratic votes, liberal votes, five votes that are more reliably conservative. And I've explained to them in prior episodes that that isn't always the case on all issues. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Paul, is that, the, is, is that 
split that people think about the the split on election uh, gerrymandering issues? Well, it, it has been uh, to some extent in more recent times that they they broke down a little bit on left right grounds. Although it's not clear why that should be the case. Uh, in the in the earlier cases, that the court was equally divided, but it wasn't divided along ideological grounds. Um, it, the it, the other thing it's important to recognize, though, is you can have five justices, you call them the so-called so conservative bloc, but they're not all the same, uh, and there's a range of difference there, and they do break uh, in, into different groupings on important issues. Uh, perhaps the most prominent one in recent years was when the chief justice voted with uh, more liberal justices to uh, uphold the Affordable Care Act uh, a few years back. And uh, he may very well be a person who will continue to do that more often than some of the other conservatives. So um, let's talk a little bit about the most recent case that you had, the North Carolina case. That that was uh, an important uh, case, a case a lot of people were watching. It caught my attention as somebody who tries to pay attention to legal issues because I was surprised that there was a, 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 a electoral gerrymandering case that seemed like it had a shot uh, to potentially get five votes. What what ended up happening with that case, just so our listeners can Well, the, this is a challenge to the congressional map that was drawn for North Carolina in 2016 uh, after they'd held their prior map held unconstitutional on that racial gerrymandering grounds, too much consideration of race uh, by the Supreme Court. And so they had to draw a new one. This time they said, we're not going to look at race at all. We're just going to draw it as partisan a map as we can. And they asked... Uh, the representative who was in charge of the process, why would you tell the map drawer to draw a 10-3 map, 10 Republican, 3 Democrat? And his answer was, I don't think it's possible to draw 11-2. to two. Um, So they were not hiding the ball. They decided they would take their chances with a partisan gerrymandering uh, challenge uh, and uh, not try to and, and use the openness about that to protect themselves from any charges of racial discrimination. And uh, so we have a very... Uh, clear case. It's a 10-3 map. There is the, the district now, District 9, that conceivably could end up going to the Democrats because of the there's the whole uh, fraud fight going on. But uh, other than that, assuming that were treated as a Republican district, it's still 10-3 to 3, even after a fairly strong Democratic year in 2018. Uh, and uh, in, in many ways, it's a pure case because they, they basically announced what they were doing and didn't deny it. Uh, we held it. It was held unconstitutional in the lower court, uh, and uh, the way these cases are are handled, they they are they're, they're tried in front of three judges in the trial court, three judge federal courts, uh, and then there's a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, there were actually two groups of lawyers challenging the map in North Carolina: a common cause group represented by one group of lawyers, and we represent at the Campaign Legal Center. We represent uh, uh, the League of Women Voters plaintiffs, along with the Southern Coalition for, for Social Justice as our co-counsel. So there'll be two groups of lawyers uh, defending the decision below that this map is grossly unconstitutional. Uh, and because it comes from a three-judge court, you have direct appeal. The court has to rule on the merits. It can't simply deny review, as it does in, in most of the cases that come up to the court, the Supreme Court. It looks to us like they're likely to take the case and have argument, and they may very well simultaneously take a case from Maryland that's on the 
same conference for January 4th conference uh, where the Maryland congressional map was also held unconstitutional as a Democratic gerrymander, which would be a nice pairing. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of getting, when you say nice pairing, that what, the, what you mean there is the fact that it seems like a less partisan issue. you got a Democratic gerrymander from one state and a Republican in the other might persuade the court to take up this issue because it doesn't appear to be a partisan. Right. And when I argued the case in the Wisconsin case last year, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, asked me a question indicating he was concerned that if they get into this whole area of law, people are going to misinterpret what they're doing as ruling for one party or ruling for the other party. Uh, and so hopefully the fact that they recognize this is a bipartisan problem, uh, that neither party is innocent, will help us convince them to get over the line and actually put some limits on this practice. So le- the last time you were up in front of the Supreme Court on this gerrymandering issue, and, and as you pointed out, you're likely going to be up again in front of the Supreme Court uh, this term. But the last time you were up in 2017, what did the court do in that case, That the, the case that you were talking yeah. about? Yeah, well, it found a way not to decide the big question of so-called justiciability. Uh, it found a way to... Um, send the case back for further proceedings, uh, it said that we had not proved um, a preliminary requirement of standing in the way that it needed to be proved. Uh, We had a group of Democratic voters who were challenging the assembly map of Wisconsin, which is uh, kind of an egregious gerrymander. Uh, But the court said, you can't sort of say, I've got a group of Democrats, all of whom want to have a Democratic-controlled assembly, and they're all injured by the fact that their their efforts in that regard are being blunted. You have to sort of prove standing person by person, district by district, and show that this person lives in this district where he's cracked or packed, and therefore he's injured individually. And so we had to go back and add a bunch of plaintiffs uh, and challenge specific districts, and that that's all going on back in the district court in the Wisconsin case as we speak. Uh, and uh, so that because of that ruling, they basically didn't have to reach the bigger question of whether these cases are ever going to be actionable in court. That's right. So I had seen that result uh, when I was taking a look at these cases uh, in preparation for this podcast, and it was interesting to me. You know, what I would say to the listeners is that often— uh, the Supreme Court uh, makes decisions on the on bases like that because they don't want to reach a broader result. Either they don't feel comfortable rendering a decision at that time. Um, it, you know, it can be an easy way to dispose of a case on on sort of technical grounds. This the ground here is essentially that you don't have a person on the other side who um, uh, you know was harmed directly harmed by this. Um, is it, would that be fair to say? Uh, right, that, that the harms we were relying on were too generalized and abstract, and we needed to make it more particularized. <clears throat> but right. it, is a, it is a way um, to defer reaching the bigger question. Uh, and it wasn't a, a requirement that we had any difficulty satisfying. It just was a kind of a technical early requirement. And, you know, so the, the football metaphor is that the court kind of punts once in a while when it really doesn't want to deal with the, the big issue. And now I saw your aff- the affidavit uh, in the current case. So it looks like you've dealt with that problem in the North Carolina case that will be before the court right. this term. 
the two sets of plaintiffs include uh, lots of individuals who are complaining about particular districts, and the associations themselves have members in all of these districts who are injured individually. And so the district court in, in North Carolina, after the Wisconsin ruling, had very little difficulty saying the standing problem is fully addressed here, and we're going to go on and reach the merits, and we're going to hold this map unconstitutional because it's so extreme. Uh, mm-hmm. and. We'll, we'll, I don't think we're going to end up losing on the standing issue again in the Supreme Court, but anything is possible. Uh, one of our listeners wonders if you have any thoughts on Maryland's 6th District. The, the Maryland case is uh, an interesting case in that it uh, is a challenge to that specific district, uh, which had been deliberately changed back in 2011 uh, to uh, from a long-standing Republican district to a, a, a Democratic district, and uh, so it it is a somewhat different from our challenge, which is more of a focus on the fact that it's a 10-3 map overall. This this one went uh, they 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 could have brought a statewide gerrymandering claim in Maryland as saying it's seven to one, it's too many Democratic districts. But the focus there, as they've decided to argue it, in, is that it's um, that deliberately changing of the district is uh, unconstitutional. It's and, it, and they did it in a very kind of egregious way by running the district down into the Washington suburbs to pick up a bunch of Democrats when the district starts way at the western end of Maryland. So it is. Uh, a, a nice illustration of, of line drawing manipulation in, in the extreme. So one 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 issue that some of our listeners raised was what how um, states can have a more neutral way of drawing maps. And I know that there are some states like California does, for example, have a more neutral way of doing that. Can you discuss some of those alternatives and whether those are lawful? Right. There are commissions uh, in a number of states. In fact, five more uh, proposals were passed by voters in, in November, five for five, to create nonpartisan or bipartisan commissions to do this. Uh, I think America is probably the only country in the world which thinks it makes sense to have politicians draw their own districts. And there are models for how you can have uh, completely neutral bodies uh, do this, which is ultimately the right answer, to have it professionalized, have people who don't have skin in the game making these decisions and following neutral criteria and not, not partisan criteria. And the, the commissions in places like California and Arizona have worked very well. Uh, the difficulty is that um, the uh, uh, voters have to pass this as a constitutional amendment under the state constitution in order to force the legislature to do it this way. And in Many states, you can get it on the ballot just by getting circulating petitions, uh, but in many other states, uh, you can't. You have to actually, to get a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot in Wisconsin or Virginia or a number of other places. You have to have it pass the legislature not once but twice. Uh, and so the legislators, not wanting to give up their power, uh, simply often refuse to do that. Uh, and so while this, is, I think, is a great solution, it's going to be a difficult one to implement politically in a lot of places, given the way state constitutions work. So uh, one thing that I think uh, li- listeners may not realize is that elections and line drawing is all done at the state level. Can you explain how that works under the Constitution? I think we think of voting and elections as a federal issue for federal offices, but it's not operated that way. 
Well, the way the Constitution is written, um, the uh, states get the first crack at setting the time, places, and manner of how federal elections for, say, the House of Representatives are going to operate. But Congress has full authority under the Constitution to change those rules and set it set its own rules if it wants to. Uh, and so uh, we see in um, H.R. 1, the bill that was just introduced in the House yesterday by the, the incoming Democratic majority, one of the provisions is to require the use of independent uh, redistricting commissions to draw congressional districts for those federal elections uh, nationwide uh, under the, exercising their power. So it, it is, in fact, been, been traditionally done at the state level. And even under H.R. 1, they, the states would establish these commissions, but Congress is trying to force that uh, on, on the states as under its authority to regulate federal elections. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. So a lot of our listeners have asked sort of what they can do to change gerrymandering. And is for one thing they can do is get their representatives to vote for H.R. 1? Absolutely. H.R. Uh, 1 contains a lot of additional wonderful provisions in, in the areas of campaign finance and voting rights, uh, public funding for elections, a lot of things that, that we at the Campaign Legal Center think were just absolutely essential. It's, it's obviously going to be a tough slog getting it through the current Senate and signed by a president, but this is just the beginning of the process. The other thing they can do is it, almost every state that doesn't have an independent commission has a popular uh, uprising underway, trying to force that through, uh, even trying to overcome these political difficulties I was describing. Um, so there are statewide organizations, often the League of Women Voters, but also other organizations that people can get involved in. And there is a real strong um, growing public interest in reforming our election system and particularly getting rid of gerrymandering that has a, a tremendous amount of momentum. So if people want to add to that, add their voice and their pocketbook to that, that would be great. I, I know that you just mentioned that uh, that some some states have an independent body that determines the, the uh, districts. What are, what are some of the states that do that? Well, California is probably the most visible because it's such a large state, and they, Governor Schwarzenegger sort of championed it and got it through. Uh, but uh, Iowa, Arizona, New Jersey, uh, there are a bunch of places. Uh, it's, it's probably about 10. I think there's some dispute about exactly how to count each one of them, but it's, it's something like that. And uh, they, they work. They, they do produce more balanced, less biased uh, maps. You, and and one one listener asked about whether or not you could have a computer program do it or have some formula that that draws maps. Could, is that possible? Well, computers are a big part of drawing district maps. Uh, you don't draw a map on paper anymore. You draw it on a screen, and it'll tell you as you're going along the population of each district, where you put the lines, and the characteristics of each district, the politics, the race, everything about it. Uh, but no one has, has yet figured out a way to just have computers handle the whole problem. One of the things, though, that we're doing in these gerrymandering cases is we are having people program computers to randomly draw districts uh, without considering politics. And what that allows you to show is uh, here's kind of the neutral way to do it. And they'll draw 10,000 uh, district maps, and you'll say, how many of those district maps have 10 Republican districts and three Democratic districts in North Carolina? 
And the answer is none. You know, so it shows how extreme their effort was to distort the, the lines in, in that North Carolina congressional case. Now, that can be a useful exercise, but I don't think this is going to be turned over to, to how the computer anytime soon is, is totally uh, handling it without people, people's involvement. Yeah, and one of the reasons why that may be the case, I'll, I'll kind of divulge to listeners that I, when I was a law clerk, I was involved on a three-judge panel, and my judge was drawing maps, and I operated that software that you're talking about, Paul. And it is you can you can have a tremendous amount of control. You literally move the mouse, and you can figure out how many Democrats and Republicans and African Americans and so forth are in the districts you're drawing. It's really something. Uh, but but one reason why you may not have a computer do it is because a computer might split right through a community, for example, or not respect other things that might uh, might be important to us. Right, and you could you can put into the computer, you know, respect um, city lines, respect county lines, respect uh, communities. Of it, you can put whatever you want into it. But part of the problem is the computer will say, "Well, here's ten thousand maps that all try to conform to those criteria. How do you pick one?" You know, uh, so the, the it's not like there's a single best way to do it. But, but they can be very helpful. One of the listeners wants to know if there's a, any impact uh, in changes to the 2020 census that might uh, draw up the congressional districts. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, sure. There's an ongoing um, uh, fight about the, the census and, and whether or not to include the citizenship uh, question in the census, which has not previously been in, the, in the, the, the form that gets sent to everybody in the country. And there's concern that that will... Uh, reduce participation by certain uh, uh, largely Latinos and people other, otherwise people who are already sort of nervous about answering the census. And the census becomes the foundation for how you draw districts because you're drawing districts of relatively equal population using census data. And so if you uh, have a chunk of people who are undercounted, uh, and, it and it tends to be a group of people of a particular ethnic group, uh, racial group, um, you can end up changing representation in a very significant way. Uh, and uh, so that's what that fight that, that's actually in the Supreme Court this, this spring is all about, whether or not um, this decision to include this citizenship question has a legitimate basis or was simply included in there because it will somewhat distort the outcome uh, of the census itself and therefore redistricting down the road. So I want to talk a little bit about a subject you touched on a minute ago when we were talking about H.R. 1, which is campaign finance reform. It's a subject that a lot of our uh, listeners talk about on a regular basis. And one thing I find interesting as a lawyer who knows a little bit about this area, not nearly as much as you, is that the mantra that people talk about when they discuss campaign finance reform nowadays is always Citizens United. Citizens United, Citizens United, Citizens United. And it seems to me that a lot of the things people complain about uh, regarding campaign finance reform started much earlier than that decision. Can you explain to us what Citizens United uh, did specifically? Well, the, there have been First Amendment challenges to regulation uh, of political contributions and regulation of political expenditures going all the way back to the 1970s in a case called Buckley versus Vallejo. Um, and most of those challenges, well, some of them were, were one way back in the, in the uh, 1970s. Independent expenditures have been deregulated for a long time by individuals. What Citizens United added was we were going to allow corporations to make independent expenditures out of their corporate general treasuries instead of having to use 
uh, sort of employee packs with very carefully regulated contributions into them and stuff. And the, the concern for people had was that the corporations have so much money that they could just come in and dominate uh, the airwaves with their independent expenditures and decide who gets elected in this country. Uh, and so it's become kind of the, the symbolic um, re- reflection of a, a broader deregulation of the, the campaign finance system that has gone uh, on in the Supreme Court over the last eight, nine years. Uh, it's not just Citizens United. There was a case, important case called McCutcheon that got rid of aggregate contribution limits. Uh, and and there are people right now trying to extend these these uh, deregulatory efforts to get rid of contribution limits altogether. Uh, and so we'll have to see how far that goes in the Supreme Court. But the, the argument that those uh, plaintiffs make is that anytime you tell me I can't make a contribution or I can't make an expenditure, it's a violation of my First Amendment rights. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a the, the competing view is that the First Amendment is better vindicated if everybody has a chance to participate meaningfully in the process. But uh, the, the Supreme Court has tended in recent years to be more agreeing with the view that we should just have hands off and let the let the process work. Um, but with at least disclosure of who's spending. Uh, and so there, there are things that can be done even within the uh, jurisprudence of the current court, like mandating really good disclosure. And if you want, also public funding of, of campaigns. Well, let's uh, let's let me, let's talk a little bit more about the arguments here, because one thing I think is a lot of our listeners may not even understand exactly how these arguments work in the Supreme Court or what the arguments are on both sides. So let's go back to to, you know, even that first decision, Buckley versus Vallejo, which to me kind of is really the starting point for all of this. The argument on the 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 side that is challenging you know, campaign finance reform, essentially saying, I should have the ability, I'm I'm a speaker in the United States, I, I'm a human being who wants to be able to speak, and the government shouldn't tell me that I can't spend a million dollars on TV ads blasting abortion or supporting abortion, right, or something like that. That's essentially what the argument is in Buckley versus Vallejo. On the, on right, and they basically they drew a distinction between laws that limit what you can give to candidates contribution limits and laws that regulate your independent expenditures. And they said they, they, the court basically agreed way back in the 70s that independent expenditures by, by individuals ought to be left alone uh, because they are uh, essentially treated, treated them as essentially pure speech. But, the, but when you're talking about contributions, the court said that's a different matter because that raises concerns about the buying of influence with the politicians, and we'll, we're, we, the court took a much more hands-off attitude toward contribution rules back in the 70s. And that distinction has uh, kind of stayed in the, in, in the law all these uh, decades later, uh, but it's now under challenge. The effort is now being made to go after the contribution limits as well. So let, let me just, I want to stick with the independent expenditures for a second. So under the, the law from the 70s, if Bill Gates decided he wanted to spend a billion dollars on television ads attacking Donald Trump just personally, he could he could have done that even starting in the 1970s, right? Right, right. What, what he couldn't do is have uh, Microsoft do it mm-hmm. out of their general treasuries. But, but personal expenditures were, were not um, capped anymore after the Buckley case. Right. So the different. So and I think this is helpful. So under the in the 1970s, Bill Gates could have spent a billion dollars attacking Trump on ads and that would have been fine. The, the change 
in Citizens United, for example, is that now Microsoft can do it. Um, and part of what we're talking about is in the 70s, the court recognized that, well, even if Bill Gates could get could spend a billion dollars, we don't want him to give a billion dollars directly to, let's say, Trump's campaign or the opponent's campaign, because that would potentially buy influence. But now even those limits are being challenged. They're being challenged, right? The other thing that the court said way back to the 70s is Bill Gates wants to do that, fine, but he has to tell us who, whose money is, is spending uh, to buy that commercial. And so the, there has always been a recognition that there's a public interest in knowing who's speaking to you, not just seeing the speech, but, but knowing whose money is paying for it. And that's, that's an important element of all this. It's also being pushed, pushed against by people who think, well, you should have a right to speak anonymously. Uh, we don't, you don't need to know who paid for this commercial uh, attacking Donald Trump or praising him. Uh, and so that's a big part of the fight as well. Part of the reason that I'm trying to clear all this up, Paul, is I think there's a disconnect between how a lot of citizens think about campaign finance and how the courts think about campaign finance. A lot of our listeners, I, I suspect, would, would, would believe that there should be limits on what anybody can spend within a certain number of days in an election talking about a candidate. Um, that that is something that has not been within the ballpark of what the Supreme Court is willing to uh, permit in terms of a regulation for many, many, many years. Right. That's the instinct that a lot of other countries have, though, that they, they, they think of the campaign phase of an election as being just part of the election and that everybody should have a set amount of money and it should be spent within a set number of days and everybody gets the same amount of airtime and, you know, that that's fair and that just makes the election uh, equal, uh, but that has never been, at least starting in Buckley, and maybe even, but well before, the way American law looks at it, because we have the First Amendment, and the courts uh, have said, look, we we are not going to treat uh, the, not going to give the ability to lawmakers to re- regulate the campaign phase in the same way that they regulate the election itself. At the on election day, everybody only gets one vote and there are rules about making sure votes get counted and that sort of thing. You want it to be fair, but their courts are much more reluctant in America to allow fairness regulations of people's speech about candidates in advance of the election. I have a question uh, about uh, you know some of the ballot measures that were in the election last uh, last year, mm-hmm. in particular places like South Dakota that tried to you know pass uh, you know the kind of uh, you know an amendment W, which uh, you know was more strict when it came to you know foreign donations and things like that. Do you think it's effective uh, in places to have that on ballots to make people think about that and participate? Well, there's long-standing rules that there shouldn't be foreign participation in elections, uh, and there is a, a, a great need to firm up the um, barriers to that, and, it, the, and proposals are being made to do that uh, both at the state and federal level. Uh, I don't know the details of the South Dakota one, but there's absolutely a need for greater regulation, and again, I think that's an area where the courts are willing to be completely open to to regulation because nobody thinks it's a good idea for people who aren't even part of our our, our citizenry to be spending money on our elections. Yeah, <laughs> that should be an easy one. It should be. Right. Uh, and one thing I will say too just so listeners know, I don't get, we don't get a lot of comments. Paul and I are explaining the state of the law on campaign finance. I think both of us, uh, I suspect, support campaign finance reform, but we're explaining to you where the right. Supreme Court is right now. Right. 
That's a helpful thing, Renan. Thank you. <laughs> I want to make sure we, we everyone understands that. So I don't start getting hate mail, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you um, a couple of things. I mean, is there hope uh, for uh, the Supreme? Do, can, do you see uh, potentially the Supreme Court moving in a different direction on campaign finance in the near future? Well, I think over time that that may very well happen, uh, and the, there is a way that that to articulate the alternative view that has actually been done quite effectively by Justice Breyer in some of his more recent dissents. Uh, but even in the short term, there's lots of, that can be done uh, within the constraints of that the court has set. And uh, I would mention again, really effective disclosure regulation: who's spending money uh, and how much. That that's something that the court has made very clear the government can do and that, that voters should have the advantage of, and that the law could be much better in that area than it is already. That's another part of H.R. 1, actually. Another is if you really want to prevent corruption from campaign contributions, um, the, often the best way to do it is have public f- financing, and that's also perfectly legal. So there are, there are things that can be done even in the very short run, even if the court continues in its current direction. What about um, the, you know our 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 next guest is a congressman who has a proposal about essentially having giving people a certain amount of additional dollars from the government to to spend. That's I think been a, a, a proposal that's become more popular. What, 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 is that something that would be legal under the current uh, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence? Yeah, absolutely. Rather than having the government just hand out money to the candidate, which is perfectly okay as well, there are these so-called voucher programs. Uh, Seattle is operating a very successful one right now, which says everybody in uh, uh, who, who's a voter in, the, in this jurisdiction has 100 bucks to direct to whatever candidate, whoever they want. And so you end up with public financing, but orchestrated by uh, the citizens. Uh, and what that does is it increases participation and it gives um, people the opportunity to raise money who otherwise might not because they can raise it from donors who would otherwise wouldn't have expendable money to give. It increases participation in the election because people have given their their uh, sort of voucher dollars to somebody are much more likely to vote. It, it's actually a very healthy uh, way to run the system. Right. And the idea there, just to explain it to everyone, is essentially that the government would say everybody in the state or in the country has got, you know, a certain amount of money, 100 bucks, let's say, that you can donate to a political cause of your choice. Uh, and it's a way of equalizing uh, the power so that the, of of uh, contributions so that this way the smaller dollar donors have more small dollars to spread around and it'll counterweight the, the billionaires. Right. Another another model is if, is, is matching programs where the, the the city or the state might say if you raise a hundred dollars from private donors we'll give you six hundred dollars to match it uh, and uh, that that again allows the initial decision about who gets money to come from the citizen but then it's reinforced and, and uh, made made more effective by the government and, and those those models work well as as well especially one one good example is New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one thing that one problem that those I think those systems avoid is a situation where you the government if you're giving if there's public financing where the government is giving a lot of money up front you could have a lot of waste a lot of money uh, uh, people who don't aren't viable or don't really have a program to, that they put together a campaign can come forward and get a lot of money. 
So, um, Paul, uh, we've already talked a little bit on the gerrymandering side. On the campaign finance side, what should folks be doing if they're concerned and, and, and want to move campaign finance reform forward? Well, they're, uh, they're basically, again, as, as there was with gerrymandering, sort of two different things to do. One is to support federal legislation that's now in place. The uh, H.R. 1 legislation has uh, good provisions to uh, promote disclosure, of, to limit, uh, try to limit dark money, the so-called non-disclosed expenditures on elections. It has good provisions on uh, making the presidential uh, public funding system uh, start working again, uh, as well as some public funding of congressional elections. Uh, all of that is very healthy, and all, all of that is within the, the, the jurisprudence of the, of the current court. So there's work to be done at the federal level, pushing representatives and senators, and then there's work to be done at the state level with the kinds of uh, ballot measures that uh, we saw. Uh, the, another good example was good government measures was passed in, in North Dakota, uh, and there are ballot measures being prepared in a number of states for the 2020 election. So uh, those, th- those are uh, really effective as well because the states can kind of be a model in this area of how to do this. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. I I learned from you. I suspect that our podcast listeners uh, learn from you as well. I appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. Thanks thanks very much for the opportunity. So now we're going to bring in Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, He represents Silicon Valley. He was elected. This is his second term, and he's one of these sort of young, energetic, new Democrats who are coming in. Uh, he was the only sitting Democrat, for example, to endorse uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, he is aligned very much with the progressive wing of the party. He's also a big ally of Nancy Pelosi and has given some interviews talking about her that got a lot of uh, press attention. And in the interest of full disclosure, he also was my law school roommate and has been my friend <laughs> since college. Look at that. So there you go. So that's 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 the the way you can get your con- uh, certain congressman on uh, speed dial. Tell us the truth. Uh, they were not on make his bed every day. <laughs> well, okay. So all right. So all right. So uh, let's bring in uh, let's bring in Congressman Kana. Okay. Hi, Renato. Good to uh, good to be on. Hello, hello. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Uh, look, I, I wanted to have you on because so many of our listeners are excited about the new, the Democrats taking over the House. They're excited about uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, kind of assuming the helm again. Um, and so can you give us a sense of what what's going on in Washington? What are the Democrats going to be doing in the uh, year ahead? Sure. Well, first of all, congratulations on the podcast. I'm, I'm glad we're having these conversations on your podcast as opposed to in our uh, apartment at 21G till 3 in the morning. So it's exciting to uh, talk to you. Well, it was an exciting day uh, yesterday. I mean, just seeing the energy uh, of the, uh, the caucus, uh, people were laughing. We were singing as the California delegation escorted Pelosi in and we're singing songs as we did. So I've never seen Democrats sort of more energized. Uh, we were all uh, so used to being on the losing side of every vote. So there's just a, a, a difference in energy. But let me tell you what our first few priorities are going to be. First, we're going to have a uh, package that's going to get uh, money out of politics, overturn Citizens United, reinstore Voting Rights Act, uh, make sure that we don't have gerrymandered districts, basic democratic reforms. And John Sarbanes has done an amazing job on that. That's going to be our first package. And everything shows in this election that people want fundamental reform. Uh, 
second, uh, we're going to attack uh, health care. We're going to make sure uh, that we uh, overturn or work to overturn that ridiculous decision in Texas that uh, held the ACA unconstitutional. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we're tackling the cost of prescription drugs by allowing Medicare to negotiate. Uh, and we're actually going to have hearings on Medicare for all. Uh, Pelosi, it's a huge step. We've never had in the House hearings before on the Medicare for all. Uh, Pelosi has agreed uh, on Medicare for all. Third, and this is close to my heart, uh, Pelosi has said we're going to have a vote of getting out of the war in Yemen. It's totally hypocritical for this president to say that he's going to be pulling out troops of Syria and Afghanistan, and yet we're supporting the Saudis in bombing Yemen. Uh, the Senate passed a resolution to stop that war. Uh, Paul Ryan didn't allow for a vote. Nancy Pelosi is going to allow for a vote. In fact, I was just with Mark Ruffalo, who was there to see Nancy, and she said this is going to be uh, a priority for us. And finally, you know, Nancy has created the uh, Green New Deal Select Committee. Uh, it's a select committee on environment. It probably didn't go far as some of us uh, uh, progressives wanted, uh, but it, it's going to uh, tackle the biggest challenge of her time. And Nancy spoke about it in her speech. Uh, there are some bold proposals to get to re a clean 100% renewable energy by 2030 or 2040. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, move to, to pass one of those things in the House. So let's start with the first one. Uh, we we just had the, the prior guest was uh, the, the man who's arguing these gerrymandering cases and campaign finance cases in the Supreme Court, uh, both last term and this term, and taught us a lot about gerrymandering and campaign finance. And he talked about H.R. 1 and some of the, the provisions that that's H.R. 1 is what you're talking about. I am. Exactly. OK, great. So um, that that w w that obviously is going to pass the House. Um, how how do the prospects look in the Senate on that one? You know, uh, candidly, it's not good. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. The uh, Republicans uh, who still control the Senate uh, are wedded to uh, Citizens United. They're not for overturning that. They are not for overturning the Voting Rights Act. In fact, some of their electoral strategies depend upon uh, not having minorities vote. Uh, so, you know, in terms of this actually becoming law, it's an uphill uh, battle. I mean, uh, you know, I know, Renato, you're always candid about uh, possibilities, so I'm not going to, uh, you know, promise something we can't do. But I still think it's important that the House pass it so that in 2020, when we hopefully do have a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, we have something ready to go. Yeah, and also I think it, it puts the issues in front of the voter, so the voters can see the contrast, right? So, you know, for instance, we just saw yesterday Cory Gardner, the senator from Colorado, is a Republican who will be up for re-election. You know, he doesn't. He suddenly uh, supports ending ending the shutdown. Uh, does not support. Uh, you know, he supports what Pelosi and, and all of you did in the House yesterday. Uh, and uh, you know, somebody like him might have to go on record uh, and say that he supports ending Citizens United if he wants to keep his seat. And that's a great point. And one of the things people should remember is that Mitch McConnell is up in 2020, uh, and uh, you know, somehow he always manages to win in Kentucky, even though he has got 35 percent approval. So he's not to be underestimated. But uh, I'm sure it's on his mind that uh, having this shutdown is not exactly good for his own reelection. Uh, and being on this against reform isn't isn't good for him. Uh, I will say for 2020, I think the reform agenda uh, should really be up front and center of what we run on. I mean, Beto O'Rourke showed that in the power of the no PAC message in, in his race in Texas. 
Uh, and it seems to me a, a something that really Democrats can draw a contrast uh, on. Now, I know you, I think you co-founded the NOPAC caucus with Beto. Is that right? I did before he was a celebrity. You know, <laughs> when, uh, now, <laughs> you know, before he had millions of viewers on every cooking thing he does on Facebook. But he's a... Uh, we did. I mean, he, uh, he and I, uh, he, he, we were one of uh, six members of Congress that didn't take PAC money, and he was bold enough to actually found that caucus. Uh, some of the others didn't want to found it because they said, how is this going to uh, play with other colleagues? But, you know, candidly, we were right. And uh, one of the exciting things with the freshman class is you have uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who is probably one of the most far-left members who ran on a no-PAC pledge, and Connor Lamb, who's probably one of the most uh, conservative Democrats who ran on the no pledge. So uh, it cuts across uh, all our ideologies within our party. You, you know, one thing we also talked about in the last segment is I asked the, the uh, constitutional lawyer about a proposal that you have uh, for campaign finance reform, which I think is interesting and people might be interested in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This is an idea that actually came from Bruce Ackerman, our old uh, law school professor, and Larry Lessig, who I know uh, you worked with. And it's very simple. It says, why don't you make every voter a donor? Every voter uh, gets $50 uh, for democracy dollars that they get to spend on federal elections. Uh, the advantage of this is this doesn't require overturning Citizens United. Citizens United says, as you, you know, that money is speech. And the Supreme Court has over and over again said you can't uh, regulate uh, money. Uh, so what this is saying is, look, we're not banning private money. We're just going to flood private money uh, with uh, public money and make sure that the public money is much more so that if you're a candidate for Congress uh, and you can go to citizens and raise $50, uh, you have a choice. You could either do that or you could spend your own money or raise uh, money from big donors. And most people would opt to uh, get the money from their actual voting public. I and mean, you wouldn't say, I'm going to go raise money from $2,700 donors and not be able to get the democracy dollars from people in your own constituency. So it's a clever proposal that has the advantage of being constitutional under under this framework. Uh, it's, it's probably a little bit uh, more radical than what the HR1 is. HR1 basically has matching grants, which is a good thing. And it says if you're contributing uh, up to $250, you would get a matching uh, a match from the federal government of six to one. And, and that's, a again, a way of empowering small dollar donors, which also would be constitutional. But I think the ultimate solution is just to give every citizen uh, money to, to spend. I've got to ask the question I know a lot of. It's, it's very basic, but I know a lot of people will have it pop in their minds. How does that get paid for? Well, the total cost is uh, $6 billion, uh, which uh, when you look at the $1.5 trillion tax cut that we just gave, if we had given a $1.4 trillion and $94 billion or whatever, $996 billion tax cut, we could have saved our democracy. So it's such a small figure. To put it in context, the military budget in this country is about $700 billion. You're talking about about $6 billion for our uh, democracy. As Larry Lessig or Bruce Ackerman point out, Coke and Pepsi spend that much uh, money on advertising budgets or, or car manufacturers do. So uh, I, I don't think it's a money issue as much as it's about getting uh, uh, rid of special interests. And so obviously 
if you're the Koch brothers, or frankly, if you're George Soros or billionaires on our side, Tom Steyer, you may not like this. It's going to diminish your power. But I, I don't think billionaires ought to be having an influence in our democracy, whether they're on the right or the left. So you talked about prescription drugs um, earlier. Can you explain to us what that legislation would do? Sure. There are a few different versions. You know, uh, uh, Lloyd Doggett, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Elijah Cummings all have different uh, bills. But let me give you some of the common themes. One is uh, Medicare should be able to negotiate uh, for the cost of prescription drugs. Right now, uh, Medicare doesn't have leverage over the pharmaceuticals. And this is why people are paying an arm and a leg for uh, these medicines. Second, you shouldn't be paying more than people are paying in France, Germany, Britain, Canada, uh, uh, or Japan. I mean, look at the average price that people are paying in other uh, countries. And if you're paying more here, then we ought to open it up to generic competition. By the way, that's something that even Trump has suggested in his Medicare reform. He said, uh, for small part of Medicare, if you're actually getting medicine at a doctor's office, we should look at the international uh, price. Uh, finally, Warren has said something, which is, why don't you have a public fund for uh, uh, medical research? We know that uh, uh, almost all the drugs that get approved, uh, of the, that are FDA approved, almost all of them have an NIH, National Institute of Health funding. And Warren says, let's, let's put even more funding towards uh, the public use of uh, research and development so you aren't privatizing the profits to big pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I think what a lot of voters may not understand is that the United States essentially subsidizes drugs for the rest of the world because we pay much higher prices for prescription drugs than any other country. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, people in other countries end up getting the benefit of, of lower prescription drugs as a result. Yeah, well, you put it more simply, Renato. That's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, the... the, uh, the yeah, that's exactly what's going on. We're basically subsidizing all these other countries. And by the way, we're not subsidizing Africa or poor people in China and India. We're subsidizing uh, people in Canada, Britain, France, who can easily afford to pay uh, for these drugs. Uh, and the second point is, let's just be clear about the pharmaceuticals, because they keep saying, oh, if you uh, don't allow us to make profits, we're not going to have research and development dollars, and we're not going to be able to have the next life-saving cure for cancer. Uh, that is just false. The uh, pharmaceuticals research and development budget has flatlined. It has not gone up for the past 10 years. So what are they doing with all this excess profit that Americans are paying? They're using it uh, on stock buybacks and to give generous packages to their CEOs and executives. It's not going for more research and development. So basically they're enriching themselves. Uh, we're paying for it. Uh, and as you pointed out, the rest of the world is benefiting. I, I have a question from a listener, and this has to do with cyber defense um, and the Internet in general. They said that during the Zuckerberg hearings, it was painful to watch in part because it was clear the questioners didn't understand the Internet. Uh, is there something that is this being remedied? And, uh, and what, are, what is our cyber defense? What's the state of that? The knowledge gap in Congress on technology is appalling. Uh, it has been mind-boggling to me. Uh, how uh, bad it is. When Zuckerberg came to Congress, the entire country was upset at Zuckerberg and said, you know, I hope those members of Congress uh, uh, go and ask some tough questions and get Zuckerberg. And then I think the country said, those are the people in charge? I mean, only the United States Congress could make the American public sympathetic to Mark Zuckerberg. And that's what we ended up doing because of our 
uh, ignorance. I mean, I had when Sundar Pichai, the Google CEO, uh, was testifying, there was a Republican congressman, you should go watch the video, who's, who held up his iPhone and he said, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Pichai, can Google, if I move 10 feet, can Google track me? Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and first, Sundar had to explain that Google doesn't make the iPhone. Apple does. <laughs> then he started yelling at. Then he started yelling at at at, at Sundar, saying, "Well, I want to know. Can you track me?" And Google and, and Sundar says, "Well, it depends what apps you have on your phone." And he literally says, "I don't care. I don't care what apps are. Who cares what apps are? Tell uh. me if you can track me." I, I mean, it was embarrassing. So uh, I don't. We have a technological illiteracy in the Congress. Uh, it's part of the reason, frankly, these tech companies have gotten away with so much because people don't understand uh, the issues enough to regulate them. Uh, I believe we need to reintroduce an office of technology in Congress uh, that can educate Congress. Newt Gingrich had cut that office in, in 94, uh, but we need to do something uh, like you have the CBO that educates members on basic uh, uh, budget implications. We ought to have something that educates members on basic technical issues. So I just want to ask one last question because I know it's on the minds of a lot of our listeners. What will the Democratic House be doing to to oversee and check the power of the Trump presidency? Well, a lot. And uh, the Elijah Cummings is going to chair the Government Oversight Committee. Uh, and we have we're a co-equal branch of government. We have a constitutional responsibility uh, to uh, make sure that this president doesn't abuse the office and to investigate the abuses of office. Uh, Ron Klain, who I know you know, Renato, as well as chief of staff to Vice President Biden, said it best. He said, uh, Democrats can't look at the politics of this. We have a constitutional duty to do our jobs, and that means holding this president accountable. Uh, that means going after his tax returns and making sure we get that. The Ways and Means Committee has the power to do that. Uh, that means looking at his financial conflicts of interest uh, overseas and, and the emoluments clause and whether he is in violation of that, whether he's personally being enriched based on business dealings overseas. That means making sure that Mueller's report is uh, aired, even if, uh, look, even if Mueller's report is uh, deemed confidential by the Justice Department, nothing prevents our Judiciary Committee uh, from uh, making sure that we call Mueller to testify on what he did. Uh, and uh, that means uh, uh, looking at uh, the various conflicts of interest of the administration cabinet members. But, Renato, I think you're one of the most sane voices on this around. The, I've heard you before. I don't know if your position has changed. But, you know, the Democrats cannot just rely on the removal of Trump from office. Uh, I always tell people, look at the Rasmussen poll. Uh, until Trump's numbers in Rasmussen uh, with Republicans fall below uh, 70%, you're not going to see uh, Republicans jump on board. Uh, and so we've got to be prepared, yes, to hold him accountable, and we'll do our part, and, uh, and, and we'll take it wherever the law leads us after Mueller. Uh, but we've got to be prepared to beat Trump in the ballot box in 2020. Well, there's no question anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows that I, I tell people all the time, you know, don't sit back and wait for Bob Mueller to change America. you got to get off your butts and do it yourselves. Uh, and uh, it is not at all clear to me that you'll ever get uh, 
34 uh, Republican senators uh, to uh, vote to convict uh, Donald Trump, for example. So absolutely. Look, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank it you for has. taking the time out, uh, Congressman Conner. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Renato. And thank you for what you did uh, in the midterms. That made a huge difference. And uh, I appreciate your voice. And, uh, you know, my parents get excited every time they see you on cable, <laughs> cable television. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 